0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, 6th graders, I want to tell you that uh, you have chosen a very interesting day to come to the service for the first time, because today's topic is the devil. The devil. Seriously, uh, we did not plan this in terms of when you guys were going to be showing up, but we decided, you know what, today we're going to talk about demons, spiritual warfare, the whole thing. So everybody buckle up. It's going to be wild today. Uh, This is the last week in our series on the Lord's Prayer. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. What we've been doing is working through the lines of the Lord's Prayer, and we're coming to the very last line here. And this has been a really cool journey. At least for me personally, I know that over the course of the summer, I have been growing, even as I'm teaching about these things, in my practice of prayer, trying out all of these different uh, approaches to prayer has been really good for me. I've heard from many of you, people who have said, you know what, I have been praying more this summer than I have in my entire life. That is so amazing. That's so cool. Uh, Some of you have come to me and said very specifically, Learning to pray scripture has been really meaningful. We've talked about that uh, a number of times over the course of this series. Uh, Some of you have approached and said, you know, after I heard Pastor Corey preach on lament, I felt freed up to just be honest with God about what's really going on in my life and in the world. And I've also heard that some of you have even forgiven Pastor Courtney for ruining the end of Toy Story 4. (laughs) I'm not one of those people. still working on it. We've also seen a marked increase in the number of people showing up wearing muscle shirts thanks to our prayer dojo videos. Did not expect that to happen. Well, let's actually look at Scripture now. We're going to be reading the Lord's Prayer here. Actually, what I'm going to do, we're going to put it on the screen, or if you've got a Bible, I'd like us to all read this out loud together. We're going to start in verse 9. Read this with me. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Sixth graders, one of the things that we like to do when we read God's word is always make sure we thank Him for speaking to us. We don't take it for granted that God actually tells us things. He doesn't have to say anything to us, but he has given us an entire book full of his truth and his love so that we would know him, and we think that is amazing, and we never want to forget how amazing that is. So we have this little tradition after we read Scripture in the service where we thank him, so we're going to do that now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like I said, we're in this last line of the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. Now, this is easily the weirdest line of the prayer to pray for most modern Western Americans. It is so strange. We don't think about the evil one very much. If we're not watching a scary movie, uh, we probably, it doesn't probably come to mind. And even if it does, it's, it's kind of something that weirds us out. We're not sure what to do with this whole idea. So today we're going to have to do some learning, because this is something that we don't think about all too much. Um, and so here's the, the thing. If we want to pray this line of the prayer, we've got to be able to do two things. The first is you need to know your enemy. You need to know your enemy. So I want to go through what the Bible actually says about the evil one. I'm going to do it in a series of questions here. And the first one is this. When we, it's specifically about the Lord's Prayer. When we pray this line of the prayer, is it deliver us from evil or is it deliver us from the evil one? Which is it? Some of you learned this prayer maybe when you were a kid and you learned it as deliver us from evil, but the version we're using says evil one. So how do we decide which is the right one? I will spare you the Greek grammar lesson, although some of you language nerds would be fascinated to learn some of this stuff, but sum it up as this. In Greek, that sentence is the exact same. You can translate it equally evil one or evil. It could either be evil as a concept or evil as the evil one as a person. Now, the good news is we don't actually have to choose between those because for Jesus, they're not separate things. When Jesus looked at the evil in the world, he knew that there was a personal entity behind all of that. And so when we confront evil, we are also confronting the evil one and vice versa. When you read through the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, again and again, you see Jesus going toe-to-toe with evil spirits. In fact, right before the the, the passage we're reading now is the story of Jesus going head-to-head with the devil. And so for Jesus, it's not a choice between an impersonal force of evil and a personal force of the evil one. They're one and the same. But second question is this. Who is this evil one? Who is this evil one? In the Bible, the evil one goes by many titles, and each of these titles tells us a little bit something about him. Uh, one of those titles is the enemy. It's this war metaphor. From the perspective of the kingdom, the, the devil is uh, a rebel against all that is good. He is fighting against everything that is good and true and beautiful. He's also called the devil. Uh, I don't know why we don't translate this word into English. Uh, It means the slanderer, the slanderer. What this means is that the devil is the one who's always talking trash about you. Sometimes he's saying true things. Sometimes he's saying false things, but he's always speaking against you. He's casting ill on you. He's also called the Satan. And yes, I included the word the in there, the Satan. Believe it or not, Satan is not a name. Okay, we normally use that as sort of like the devil's personal name. That's not what it is. It's actually a title. It's a Hebrew word that has a meaning. It means accuser. So if you are in a court situation and you are accused of a crime, the person charging you with the crime is the Satan. They they are the accusing, the prosecuting attorney. So, all jokes about lawyers aside, lawyers are not the devil, but the devil is a lawyer. Okay? (laughs) And and this is what he does he loves to stand before god and whisper in your ear you are guilty you are wrong you should be condemned to heap on the guilt and shame he is the accuser that's why we call him the satan he's also the tempter this is what he loves to do he wants us not just to do but to want things that are destructive for us and destructive for other people he loves to make poison look like pleasure so that we will willingly drink it down he is the tempter he's also called the father of lies The devil is a master deceiver. Half-truths and fake news are his native tongue. He's called the murderer. The evil one is against life in all of its forms. And then the Bible also uses a number of images that come from the animal world to emphasize the, the devil's dangerous and destructive nature. He's called the dragon, the roaring lion, the serpent. Now, with all of these titles, I want to point something out. It's this. These are all actually titles. They're titles. They're not names. We actually don't know the name of the evil one. Like like I said before, Satan is not a name, it's a title. Same goes with the word Lucifer. Uh, I'm not going to be able to unpack this whole passage, but there is a passage in the book of Isaiah uh, where it uses this term Lucifer in the Latin translation of the passage. It is a poem where Isaiah is talking about this Babylonian king who has uh, fallen and he compares the Babylonian king to the serpent in the garden. We're going to talk about that story in a minute. And in doing so describing the king before he falls he describes him as the light bringer which is a a, a, you know title of glory but in Latin that is translated Lucifer so some people a long time ago said I wonder if that was actually that serpent's name before the serpent fell and from there that's why we've been calling the devil Lucifer but it's not actually a name it might not even be for the devil and it's a title at the very least now all this is to say We don't know the devil's name, but I think that's on purpose. I think there's a reason for that. I think the Bible uses a collage, a a mosaic of images to show what this creature is like, but it never dignifies him with a proper name. It's it's almost a way of of putting him beneath uh, his station. But all of this raises a question. Where exactly did this evil one come from? Uh, The thing you've got to get about the devil is this. It's so important. The devil is a creature. He is a creature a lot of times we think about spiritual battle as like there's god and there's the devil and they're kind of evenly matched it's this struggle back and forth it's like they're 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 almost equals but one's on the good side one's on the bad side nothing could be further from the truth the devil is a creature just like cats and cockroaches this thing was made by god and is no match for god unlike god the devil is limited he is not all-powerful He is not all-knowing. He is not present everywhere at all times. He has not always existed. He is a creature. Now, an interesting side effect of this, a conclusion of this, is that if the devil is a creature, that means the evil one was not always evil. I mean, think about it. If you even open up the Bible to the first page, you've probably seen this. When God made the world, each time he made something, what happened? It said God looked at what he made, and he saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. Seven times on the first page of the Bible, it says it was good. In the seventh time, it actually says God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. Nothing that God made was evil in the beginning. So that raises the next question. What was the evil one doing before he was evil? What was he doing before he was evil? He was part of what we call the divine Now, this is going to be super weird for a lot of you. You're like, I have never heard of that before. But once I explain it to you, you will see it all over the Bible. All throughout the Bible, God is depicted as a king on his throne. And just like kings in the ancient world, he is surrounded by a royal court, an entourage of beings who do his bidding and give him honor. Let me give you just one example in the Bible where this comes up. Psalm 89 says, The heavens praise your wonders, Lord. Your faithfulness, too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Pick that up. The the council, the assembly, those who surround God. Who are these beings? Well, these beings are God's staff team. So even when we talk about our own government today, uh, if you pick up the, the news, you will see headline after headline that says things like, uh, the, the president issued a statement. The president uh, issued an executive order. The president tried to buy Greenland, which is apparently a thing that happened this week. I don't know. Um, but all the time, those headlines make it sound like there is one person doing all of these things. The president did this. But if you actually look at the details, you say, okay, how did this actually come about? You realize that the president has a cabinet of people, He has a staff team. There's a whole bunch of people in his administration who carry out all of these activities. So even though it's referred to in one one person, there is an administration that that is behind the scenes doing all of this stuff, running the country, running the government. This is how the spiritual realm works. God has a council made up of a variety of spiritual beings who administrate the universe. They put God's plan into action. So if you read the Bible and you come across the phrase, the heavenly hosts... Or you see the phrase, principalities and powers and rulers in spiritual places. This is the group they're talking about. It's the behind the scenes administration of the world. Now, I would love, I would love to unpack this. I studied some of this in grad school. I think it's so fascinating, but I do not have time. But fortunately, there is a resource I'd love to send you to that will tell you about this. You've heard me talk about the Bible Project before. They make these really cool videos about themes in the Bible. They actually did a series of seven videos this year on spiritual beings. Uh, If you want to know more about this, that's a a great place to begin. It's a a deep dive. You will love it. Um, But this is what you need to know about the devil. Before the devil was bad, he was a chief member of this heavenly court. He was one of the attendants that served around God's throne. And in the Bible, these creatures who stand around the throne are called seraphim and cherubim. And interestingly, in the ancient world, when they depicted these creatures, even in other cultures, you know what they drew them as? Serpents. Serpents. This leads to the next question. How did the evil one go bad? How did the evil one go bad? We don't know when exactly it happened what we know is that the first time this creature shows up is on page three of the bible third chapter of genesis and he's already up to no good so somewhere between the first page of the bible when it says all that god made was very good and the third page of the bible when the serpent is there trying to throw things off something went wrong now there are clues here and there scattered throughout the pages of scripture but the story is not uh, completely clear. But i can tell you this i can tell you why the serpent was in the garden to begin with you ever wonder about that like why was the snake even here why didn't eve freak out when the snake started talking to her like it's a very strange circumstance you've got to understand what the garden of eden was there for we sort of think of a garden as like a pleasant place to stroll you know nice flowers nice fruit you know it's kind of a a place to rest the garden of eden in the bible though is this it is the meeting place between heaven and earth wasn't just a place to hang out it was God's royal court on earth it was the place where his throne was where he met with his people it's the place where his staff meetings occurred the divine council would gather there and this is what Adam and Eve were in the garden for God had appointed human beings very first page of the Bible made in God's image appointed to rule the world on God's behalf Adam and Eve are the king and queen of creation and so when they gather in the garden, they're gathering to meet with God as well as the rest of the divine council. And so when Eve is interacting with this serpent, the reason she's not freaked out is because she's talking to a coworker, another member of this heavenly staff team. Only this time, her coworker is planning a coup. Now, theologians debate about this one, but I actually think that Genesis 3 was the first shot in the war, in the heavenly places. It was the first act of rebellion. I think this is the place, the only reason I think the serpent was allowed there, because he hadn't rebelled yet, this was the place where he said, I'm going to take my first shot at God and his people. But again, there's a debate about that. But either way, we know what the serpent was trying to do. He was trying to overthrow the rightful rulers of planet earth. Adam and Eve have the throne, but if the serpent wants to rule, he's got to get them to abdicate their throne, to step away. So he deceives them, he tricks them, he tempts them, he manipulates them to follow his will, and it works. I still have not seen the live action version of The Lion King, but I love the original movie. And so we decided this week that we would show our kids the, the original animated version of The Lion King. So fantastic. Uh, we watched it with the kids and uh, I sang along and they were bothered by my singing and it was, it was just a wonderful family moment. But I love, I love this movie and I was, as I was watching it, I thought about how Scar is such a good bad guy, and part of the reason is his plan is a mirror of the same plan that the serpent had, the evil one had. Scar wants to take over the kingdom of Pride Rock. He wants to be in charge, and he resents the fact that he's not. And so what he has to do is get rid of the heir to the throne. And so he tricks, he deceives, he, he fools Simba into abdicating his throne so that he can take over the kingdom. Now, the difference between the Lion King and the Garden of Eden is that humans were actually guilty. We deserve to be sent away, and Simba was innocent. But either way, the same effect takes place. The rightful ruler is exiled, and the enemy can take over. This is what happened in the Bible. The reason the Bible calls the devil at times things like this. The prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the world, the god of this age. Why would the Bible give such lofty titles to the evil one? It's not because the devil has taken over God's place on the throne. It's because he's taken over humanity's place on the throne. Now, this is different than what most people think the devil is in charge of. Most people think, well, the devil's kind of the ruler of hell, right? Like he's the king of hell or something like that. Nothing could be further from the truth. Hell is not the devil's kingdom. It's the devil's prison. Hell was invented as the place to punish the devil and the demons who follow him. So the the devil doesn't want to be in hell. He wants to rule over earth. Now, this raises another question the, the mention of demons. What is the deal with demons? Simply put, demons are other members of the heavenly court who joined the serpent in the rebellion. And now, instead of administrating the universe in a way that works well, they work for injustice, they work for suffering, they work for chaos. They, they work at the big levels and on the scale of governments and cultures and societies. They work on the small level, on the level of individuals trying to mislead us and harm us and control us. But they're, they're out to rule on their, on their terms. Now, this war can take a variety of forms. When we talk about wars between nations, we often talk about two different types of wars. We talk about hot wars and cold wars. In a hot war, it's fought in the open on a battlefield. It's it's guns and bombs and planes and, and people are dying right there on the field. It's out there and overt. Some of the warfare that the devil does is out there and overt. It is it is on the lines fighting. This is when we're talking about things like demon possession. We're talking about Christians being persecuted and killed for their faith. It is outright warfare. The the evil one tends to use this approach in cultures where there is already a belief in gods and spirits and magic and ghosts. Uh, He'll kind of amp up the level of fear and superstition and make more overt moves in the war. But there are also wars that are cold wars. Cold wars are the ones that are fought behind the scenes. They're, They're fought with spies and sabotage and misinformation. People aren't usually killed or kidnapped out in the open. It's done in the shadows, behind the the closed doors where people don't normally see it. In cultures like ours, where we are more skeptical of spiritual things, this tends to be the, the, the approach the forces of evil use. We are happy to ignore the spiritual world, and they are happy to take advantage of that fact. And so they will convince us, instead of coming outright, they will just convince us that sin isn't that big of a deal. No big deal. They will help us ignore spiritual things. When we see injustice, they will help us cover our eyes and turn away. They will get us addicted to anything and everything they can. They will get us to wrap our sense of identity and value around our career and our stuff and our comfort. In a cold war, the demons don't need to possess us. They just need to suppress us. Getting us wrapped up into little destructive things that will make us ineffective for God's kingdom. Now, before I get too far, I do want to take a minute and talk a little bit about this idea of demon possession. Because it really weirds people out. But it's in the New Testament. You're going to come across it. Even if all you've read is the biography of Jesus, you have come across demon possession. The the apostles and Jesus both in the Bible encounter people who at some level have been taken over by demons. These are not just demons who are along for the rise. They've been handed the keys to the car in these people's lives. And in the Bible, these stories are, are fairly dramatic. People scream and convulse. They behave in unpredictable ways. Uh, one man showed unnatural strength it's really intense stuff and that's the reason it catches our attention now we need to hold this in balance here because demon possession is two things it is both very real but it's also somewhat rare it is real i i've never personally cast out a demon but i know people who have both in this country but also in other countries Uh, it's much more common in places uh, around the world like i said where the hot war is going on Uh, many of our ministry partners this is a, a big part of their ministry so demon possession is very real, but it's also somewhat rare. It should not be our first explanation for why things go wrong. It should actually be one of our last explanations. We need to be careful not to attribute physical illness or mental health issues to demon possession. We, we should be careful not to blame our sinful habits and saying, well, that's just a, a demon. No, that might actually just be you. Oddly enough, the Bible does not tell us how a person becomes demon-possessed. Doesn't go into those details, but it does give us very stern warnings about any attempt we might make to get in touch with the spirit world. I'm talking about anything from fortune telling to psychics to tarot readings. I'm talking about any kind of channeling of spirits or contacting the dead through a medium. Honestly, even astrology and horoscopes are probably a bad idea, even if you take them about as seriously as a fortune cookie. Again and again, the Bible calls all of these things both sinful but also dangerous. And here's why. Best case scenario in these situations is you are being duped. It's all a lie, it's fake, it's a waste of your time and money. But worst case scenario, you actually get in touch with a being from the spiritual world and if it's not God, you are interacting with an ancient evil force that is smarter than you and hell-bent on your destruction. You do not want that to happen. So I'm not saying that if you check your horoscope, you're gonna get demon-possessed. What I'm saying is this, nothing good will ever come from trying to get in touch with a spiritual being that is not named Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. You just don't want to go there. Now, with all this, you might be wondering, can a Christian, can a Christ follower be possessed by demon? Simple answer is this, no. The New Testament is very clear that when you surrender your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live on the inside of you. And the Holy Spirit doesn't do roommates. He lives on his own, okay? He's not gonna let anybody else enter you. But that being said, the devil still wants to influence us. He still wants to get at Christ followers. And if if we let him, he will. So let me put it this way. A demon may not be able to move into your house, but he'll camp on your lawn if you let him. So don't let him, okay? You don't need to fear possession, but that doesn't mean you can let your guard down. Now, here's the final question with this that I'm sure some of you are thinking. Do you really believe this stuff? Like, seriously, this sounds like crazy talk, Clayton, and it does, even to me as I'm saying it. It sounds weird. I love fantasy novels. This reads like a fantasy novel to me. There are plenty of reasons to not believe this story. For one thing, I have seen Scooby-Doo. Have you? (laughs) Every Scooby-Doo story works the exact same way. When the gang rolls up in the mystery machine, they find some sort of supernatural menace is out doing something, a vampire, a ghost, or a monster. And all of the characters react in the exact same way. Shaggy freaks out. He believes it's real, and he's scared to death. Velma, she is scientifically minded, so she goes and investigates to see what's really going on. Fred, he goes and hunts down the, the human bad guy who's probably behind all of this. And the moral of the story at the end of every episode is this. Don't be gullible like Shaggy, be rational like Velma. That's the message. Now, here's the thing. Our culture has been scooby doo bified <laughs> scooby Scuba, doo <scuba-do-ba-do-ba-do-ba-do>. doo <laughs> doo doo We have been told again and again, you need to be skeptical of supernatural explanations for things, and you should also be suspicious of people who use those explanations because they're probably using it to, for their own ends. They're manipulating you. That's that's the message of Scooby-Doo, and it's the message our culture tells us. And I've seen this before. I've seen people who believe in the devil and demons really misuse this. There are some people who think that every inconvenience, every unfortunate event is spiritual warfare. I know people who have not, not gotten help for physical illnesses or mental health issues because their pastor or their parents insisted it was a demon. I know people who have been intimidated into submission out of fear of the devil. I know people who have attributed, they've refused to take ownership of their behavior, their sin, because they blame the devil. But even when it's abu- not being abused, the idea of the devil and demons, it just, it just seems strange. Like, like you're living in this weird world full of sneaky creatures with horns and a pitchfork and a, a tail and red tights and stuff. It's like, why would you believe this sort of thing? Well, for one thing, I don't actually believe that the devil and demons wear red tights or carry a pitchfork. None of that stuff's in the Bible. But here's the reason I believe in this stuff. Because Jesus believed in it. Down the street from our St. Charles campus is Fermilab. if you go to Fermilab and you talk to a physicist there, and you say, tell me what the universe is really like. They're going to tell you all sorts of amazing things. They're going to talk to you about bosons and neutrinos and quarks. And they're going, to, they're going to tell you how light is both a particle and a wave at the same time. And they're going to talk about how matter and energy are interchangeable with each other. They're going to talk about how on the smallest scale, the universe is made of 11-dimensional strings. And on the largest scale, that time and space can be warped by gravity. And you listen to this stuff and you say, really? That sounds like crazy talk. But if you say so, I believe it. Why do you say that to the scientist? You you can't do an experiment. You can't prove what they're claiming. You can't even check their math. Why do you believe the scientists when they tell you all of this crazy stuff about the nature of the universe? Because you figure they know what they're talking about. Even though you can't do the experiment, they've done the experiment. Even though you don't have the data, they've seen the data, and they've figured it out. The same is true with Jesus. I cannot do the experiment that proves that angels and demons and the devil exist. But I know someone who died and rose again. And when you've got a friend who does that, you tend to believe the things he tells you. You know, it's like, oh, okay, if that's what the spiritual world is like, you've been to the other side and you returned. So, you know, I'm going to take your word for that. Now, if you're here and you don't yet believe that Jesus rose again, you don't think that Jesus was God, I want to give you a pass for today. You don't have to worry about trying to believe in all of this uh, spiritual warfare demon sort of thing if you haven't figured out what you actually think about Jesus. Work on that question first. Look into the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Like the eyewitnesses, do you, do you think they were lying? Do you think they were fooled, or did they really see what they said they saw? Look into the claims that Jesus made about himself. When he said that he was God. Do you think that he was insane? Do you think he was a con man, or might he have been who he said he was? Try to figure out those questions first before you try to unpack this other stuff that seems even more weird. In the meantime, here's what I'd ask you to do. As you listen to me explain this, try to imagine, what would it be like if I actually believed that for myself? Why is it that there are people who find this to be a helpful explanation for things? What does it explain that my view of the world doesn't explain? How would I feel about the world? How would I see things differently if I believed those things? At the very least, by being sympathetic as you listen, you will gain some understanding for people in the world who see things very differently from you, which, by the way, is most people in the world. Even among non-Christians outside of the U.S. and Europe, the, uh, the belief in supernatural evil is almost universal, almost universal. It is hard not to be culturally arrogant, to look down on other people as primitive and superstitious if you don't take the time to say, why do intelligent people across many cultures take this very seriously. Uh, Listening with a sympathetic ear will help you with that. For me, believing in supernatural evil helps for at least a few reasons. One is this, it keeps me from being simplistic. There are situations, there are circumstances that are difficult to explain if your only explanations are physical, psychological, and social. Uh, One of the really obvious ones is the Nazis. Like you're gonna explain the Nazis by saying it was just a physical thing. There's some chemicals wrong in Hitler's head. Or or as a psychological thing, every Nazi just had a bad childhood and had wrong influences in their life and something was wrong with them. Or it's just social, it's just cultural pressures that moved, and that's the only explanation for this. I think some of those things are real factors, but I also find it very helpful to think there might be a bigger, darker force that is fanning the flames of this sort of evil and injustice in the world. Even on a smaller scale, there are circumstances where I say, this goes beyond the, the physical, social, and psychological explanations I can give. There's something supernatural involved. It keeps me from being simplistic. It also helps me by getting, letting me oppose evil without being against people. I can oppose evil without being against people. Listen to what Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, I mean, meaning human beings, But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It it is so easy when you see injustice or evil in the world to draw a line between us, the good people, and them, the bad people, and say, they're the enemy, they need to be crushed and destroyed. But if the true enemy is the evil one, then I can look at other people, and even if I condemn their actions, I can see them as not just a perpetrator, but as a prisoner of the real enemy, the evil one. And I can hold out hope that they might be able to be set free. I can love them even while condemning the evil. And here's where we get to the next point. This line of the prayer begins, deliver us from the evil one. If you want to pray this prayer, you need to not only know your enemy, but more than that, you need to seek your deliverer. You need to seek your deliverer. When the Bible talks about our relationship with sin and evil, it describes it in two ways. One way is it describes us as perpetrators. When we sin, what we are doing is we are raising our fist with the serpent saying, God, I don't want you to be king. I'm going to go this way instead of your way. And so for that, being joining in the rebellion means we are guilty and we need to seek forgiveness. We talk a lot about that. But another way that the Bible describes us in relationship with evil is not just as perpetrators, but as prisoners, as captives. We have been enslaved by the evil one. And we need to be delivered, rescued, set free from that. And a key thing to realize in this is that we cannot rescue. We cannot deliver ourselves from the evil one. There's a reason we pray for this to happen. We cannot deliver ourselves from the evil one. We need a, a deliverer to come from the outside to rescue us. And this is where Jesus comes in. The book of Colossians says this, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you have put your trust in Jesus, God has taken you out of the dominion, the kingdom, the rule of the evil one of darkness, and brought you into the kingdom of his son, the one who loves you and gave his life for you. You are under King Jesus now. But how does this happen? What did Jesus do to make it so that we could be set free from that? First thing Jesus did was this. He did what no human being had ever done before, and he lived a life where he never, ever gave in to the temptation of the evil one. This is what that story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is all about. It's right before this in, in the book of Matthew. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, and he goes toe-to-toe with the devil. Now, when you read this, what you need to see here is that this is the Garden of Eden revisited. This is uh, humans versus the evil one 2.0. This is, this is round two of the fight. Because Jesus steps onto the scene and he's like, I'm a new kind of human. I'm showing you how to really live the human life. And the devil's like, okay, I've seen this one before. Let's go. And so they go toe to toe for 40 days. And the devil throws everything he has at him again and again, tempting him, tempting him, tempting him. And never once does Jesus give in. Now, when we read that story, it gives us an example of what we should also do when we're facing the devil. But more than that, It gives us a picture of something we could never do, which is actually completely overcome sin. Jesus did something that none of us were able to pull off. The the first Adam in the Garden of Eden handed control over to the serpent. But in the wilderness of Israel, the second Adam took control back. He said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not yielding to your will. And from that point forward, Jesus marches through Israel and takes on the forces of evil throughout his ministry. Everywhere Jesus goes, he heals diseases and he casts out demons. And every time he encounters an evil spirit, it tries to ratchet up the chaos. It's yelling and flailing and interrupting and arguing. And Jesus, he's like, I'm not going to play that game. He just calmly takes control of the situation. When we see movies about exorcism, it's always spinning heads and pea soup and stuff like that. And even in Jesus' day, Jewish exorcists, they approached it as this complicated matter. They would burn incense and wear amulets and say incantations and invoke the name of different angels. And it was a struggle. It was a battle. It was a technique. But for Jesus, none of that. This was his process with demons. He simply said, shut up, come out, and never return. And you know what they did? Exactly what he said. Why? Because Jesus was in charge. He was the king. He was the rightful ruler on the throne. And so in his authority, they had to obey. After this, Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross, what Jesus was doing was he was paying the penalty for all of us rebels who joined with the serpent. He was paying the price that we deserve for rebelling. But this was not just about forgiving us our sin. It was also about defeating the devil by doing that. By removing our guilt, removing the charge against us, he took away the devil's claim on us. The accuser can no longer accuse because we are forgiven. The murderer can no longer kill because we are no longer condemned to death. Jesus defeated the devil on the cross. Then when Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. He went to sit on the throne. And now a true human is once again on the throne. And the serpent no longer can claim the rule of earth. He has been overthrown. He has been cast down. And the king has taken his rightful place. And now what that means is you and I, we live in this kind of weird in-between time. Jesus is on the throne, but the devil is still prowling around trying to do stuff. Classic analogy for this is the difference between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. So when the Allied forces land on the beaches of Normandy, when that battle is won, the war is decisively over. It is decided. No one is in question about what's going to happen. It is for sure the Allies are going to win, the Nazis are going to be defeated. But for 11 more months, the Allied forces marched across Europe, liberating town after town, group after group, person after person, defeating the enemy as they went. This is where we are in, in the war uh, between uh, good and evil. The battle, uh, the, the war has been de- decisively won. Jesus has died and rose again. Satan is defeated. But right now we're kind of in the cleanup phase. We're marching through. We are liberating people. We are, we are casting out the enemy and we are taking ground for the kingdom. This is what's going on right now. It's, it's just cleanup. So this turns to the practical question. How do we actually pray against the evil one in our lives? I wanna teach you a classic way that, that many, many Christ followers have do almost every day when they're praying about the evil one. They pray through a portion of scripture called the armor of God, the armor of God. I already read a bit of this passage to you. It's found in Ephesians 6, but let me read it again to you with the full part. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. That's kind of the introduction. Then Paul kind of unpacks this metaphor, kind of makes it more detailed, talking about each piece of the armor as a virtue, as a character trait we should put on. He says, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, I'm not gonna explain each item in in the the armor of God here in detail, but this is the way people pray through this. They go through each of those those items and they pray for that character trait to be true in their lives. So they talk about the the belt of truth buckled around their waist. So you pray, God, make me a person of truth, a person who knows the truth, believes the truth, speaks the truth so that I can reject the lies of the evil one. For the the next part, the uh, breastplate of righteousness, we pray, God, make me a righteous person person. Make me someone who stands uh, in righteousness with you, but also lives a righteous life so that I can resist the temptation of the evil one. For, For the shoes that we're wearing, make me ready always to share the gospel, the good news, the message that liberates people from the clutches of the evil one. You go through each item in that, and you pray, God, make me this sort of person today. Now, one of the things I find interesting about this is that Paul, the one who wrote this, was very familiar with the more dramatic forms of spiritual warfare, casting out demons, exorcism, that sort of thing. But his description of how do you stand against the devil, the primary place where he put the emphasis was the character you put on, the kind of person you become. Ordinary day-in, day-out spiritual warfare is not dramatic or flashy, but it's very powerful, very effective. But what about those times when you feel like, you know what, I'm particularly being attacked by the evil one. You, you feel like something about my circumstances right now make me feel like I'm just, I'm just being a target. We, we don't always know what the evil one is doing. Uh, frankly, we're always under attack. We are in a war zone, so you can always kind of assume that. But there are times when you feel like, you know, he's taking aim at me. Temptation feels stronger than it usually does. You're getting hit with a one hard situation on top of the other. Your relationships are full of tension. Your your attempts to share your faith or to serve people in need keep getting blocked. There are things happening in your life or in your world that are defaming the name of Jesus. And you look at that and you don't know, is that an intentional arrow of the devil? I don't know, but I know he loves for those things to happen. So what do you do when you feel like you're under a barrage of this sort of stuff? Well, I'll tell you one thing that I do is I fast, I fast. Have you ever fasted before? This is a a practice that when we give up something good, For a time for the sake of focusing on seeking God and his intervention in our lives. Traditionally, people give up food for a fast, but sometimes people will give up other things like social media or TV or sweets or music. But fasting is a way of saying, God, I need you and your help more than I need this. I need you more than I need food. I cannot survive without you. I am desperate for you to intervene in my situation. It is a way of feeling and magnifying the intensity of your longing to say, God, I need you to do something. At one time when Jesus' disciples were uh, attempting to cast out a demon, they were having a hard time, and they came to Jesus and said, what's up with this? And Jesus said, there are some spiritual battles that can only be won by prayer and fasting. So it should be a regular practice of us. If you've never done this, I challenge you to try it, maybe even this week. Uh, If you're pregnant, if you're nursing, you have a a serious health condition or you've ever had an eating disorder, this is probably not something to try right now, at least not without consulting someone to see if it's an okay thing. But if you do want to try it, if you've never done this, I would recommend simply by skipping one meal. Now, if you're like, that doesn't sound that hard, try it, okay? (laughs) Skip one meal, spend the time you would have spent eating, praying, And then throughout the rest of the day, as you feel hungry, each time you're like, oh, I should go get a snack, use that as a prompt to pray for that same thing. To say, God, I need you. I'm hungry for this. But what I'm more hungry for is what you are going to do in my life in this situation. Fasting is an important enough practice that we're actually going to organize as a church this year, uh, a a, a church-wide fast. If you've been around a while, you know that three times a year we have what we call the week of prayer. Well, this fall, when we kick off our ministry season, we're gonna have our week of prayer, but it's gonna be a week of prayer and fasting. Uh, On September 8th, our Vision Weekend, we're gonna start uh, with a prayer and worship gathering for all four of our campuses here at the St. Charles Campus. We call that Ignite. And I hope that after a summer of talking about prayer, we will pack this place with people and we will be praying for the needs of our church. And after we kick that off, for the rest of the week, we're gonna ask everybody who calls Christ Community Home, will you pray for the church and will you find some way to fast for the church? Uh, We're going to do that. We're going to give you some more details, some instruction about that. But I'm excited that we're going to try this. This is something that churches have been doing since the New Testament. It's an important practice of the people of God to plead with God to guard us from the evil one, to provide uh, that our ministry would not be hindered by the one who hates us. This week in Bible Savvy, we read a passage in the book of James. James chapter 4, it says this. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double minded. I mentioned before that I watched the original Lion King with my kids this week, and I actually had this passage in mind as I was watching, because there was a scene that came up where Simba, the little lion cub, he is uh, lost and he finds himself in an elephant graveyard, the place where his enemies, the hyenas, live. And as he's there, the hyenas come after him. They chase him down, and they corner him in a spot, and he cannot get away. And Simba, realizing he's a lion and they're hyenas, he's like, I'm going to scare them away. So he you know, puffs out his chest. He, he rears himself back, and he tries to roar, and he goes, Eah! And the hyenas laugh at him, and they come a little bit closer. But Simba tries again. He backs up, and this time it's, Roar! It turns out, unbeknownst to Simba, his father is behind him. And in just a moment, he's got the hyenas pinned to the ground. And he says to the hyenas, if you ever touch my son again, and the hyenas are off. This is how we are with spiritual warfare. We cannot deliver ourselves. On our own, we are not that scary. But we don't need to deliver ourselves. We don't need to fight Our battles for us we have a father who will do that for us and just like Mufasa says to Simba in the next scene no one messes with your dad let's pray Heavenly Father you have taught us to pray to you with boldness asking for things that we don't deserve and can never accomplish on our own including the defeat of the evil one and so that's what we pray for in our lives God, I pray for each person here that you would conquer the devil in their lives. That whatever schemes the evil one has in mind for them, even this week, I pray that you would intervene and and protect. Whether that's situations of temptation, whether that is some form of physical harm, whether it is uh, some sort of division in their life, some sort of false belief, some sort of attack or slander. God, I don't care what it is. You are stronger than that. And so I pray that you would intervene in those situations for each person here. God, make us people who are both aware of the battle but also confident in the battle, knowing that you are with us. And because of what your son has done, we have no reason to fear. It's in his name that we pray.